welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Ekene Ijoma. He's featured in Altogether Amongst Many, Reflections on Empathy at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha. The exhibition, which was curated by Rachel Adams, examines how artists have centered empathy within their work. It's on view through September 19th. Ijoma is the director of Poetic Justice at the MIT Media Lab. His work brings together data with aesthetics and social issues across disciplines such as performance and installation. His work has been exhibited at institutions such as Storefront for Art and Architecture, the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., the Contemporary Art Museum Houston, and the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis. Ijoma's A Counting, a series of multimedia linguistic portraits of the United States created by crowdsourced recording, is being presented concurrently by the Contemporary Art Museum Houston, the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis, and the Bemis. Listeners may participate by calling a toll-free number. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Chloe Bass at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend and give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you download the program. Ekene Ijoma, after the break. If you've been waiting patiently to get back to the Getty Center or experience it for the first time, great news. The center has reopened. Savor stunning architecture, sweeping views of Los Angeles, and the lush Central Garden. Check out four new exhibitions, including Photo Flux on Shuttering LA, Artists as Collectors, and Power, Justice, and Tyranny in the Middle Ages. Make free advance reservations at getty.edu. We can't wait to see you. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents Sea Lavender live at Low End on June 24th at 8 p.m. Central. Sea Lavender is a Brooklyn-based, multidisciplinary sound artist, sound healing practitioner, and educator whose work spans live performance, recording, installations, compositions, videos, and workshops. She seeks to create an immersive oral landscape for the listener, an experience that is intensely physical, emotional, and ultimately cathartic. C. Lavender has performed, lectured, and hosted workshops at MoMA, the Whitney, the Guggenheim, the Hirshhorn Museum, the Rubin Museum, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, the Museum of Moving Image, Friedman Gallery, and Rennesleyer Polytechnic Institute, among other venues. Performances at Low End are an integral part of Bemis Center's Sound Art and Experimental Music Program and are presented with lead support by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. This one-of-a-kind program provides unique resources to support the research, creation, and presentation of new work by artists working in sound, composition, voice, and experimental forms of music, and Low End, a live music venue. Low End features free live shows by local, national, and international sound artists, composers, and experimental musicians. These performances aim to not only build new audiences and a greater appreciation for non-traditional forms of sound, but also to liberate artists, to take risks and present truly avant-garde work. And we're back. Akinayi Joma, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. Let's start with accounting. The question of which U.S. residents are granted the full benefits of citizenship has been contested since the Revolutionary War, of course. And one of the most fundamental acts by which a federal state acknowledges citizenship is through counting, which in the United States is done through the U.S. Census. Despite how fundamental the census is to American citizenship, I wouldn't say <laughs> that it lives long or large in art history. <laughs> 
So before we turn to how you constructed accounting, why did you want to engage with, with the census? So around that time, we were just getting towards the end of census 2020. So, you know, I just started my group at MIT, Poetic Justice, and one of my other works in my studio was going to be included in an exhibition at the Museum of the City of New York titled Who We Are Visualizing New York by Numbers or something like that. And I proposed to also include a work from my lab. And so the curator said, well, if you can think of something, then yes. And so we started discussing different ideas. And I was thinking about a lot of my previous works have been sort of inspired by different reference material, which is sometimes data and sometimes like a life experience or observation. And so being that it was the 2020 census and the exhibition was including other works that were either data-based or data-inspired, the census just felt like something to explore. And so, I don't know, I just, the ideas sort of come intuitively. So I was just thinking about, I had been reading stories about non-white populations in the U.S. being undercounted throughout history from the start of the census, people being counted either not at all or as a fraction. And then when those people are counted, those counts are used against them. So it's, it's this thing of damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> you know, if they're counted, they know where to find you and they know how to exploit you. If you're not counted, then it's well it's the same thing <laughs> so, in a different way but yes yeah, the same thing yeah so i was just i just wanted to rethink what it means to count and if we're really counting all americans or all people within the u.s then what does it mean for that count to be whole and so counting to 100 using all the languages spoken in the u.s felt like what a good way to start to think about what that would sound like or what that would look like. And being that it's generative and evolving over time, unlike the census, it's like an ongoing thing of trying to portray the U.S. as this place that is diverse in ethnicity and linguistically. In my off-podcast life, I do a lot of work on 1850s and 60s California, and early in the American imperial period in California, there were over 300 linguistic groups within the American state of California. And as I thought about your project and your focus on language, I thought about the ways in which languages live and die, but also how, you know, in a place and in a history where there were so many languages that in certain contexts, there is a ready excuse for a ready institutional excuse for an undercount. Yeah, that's true. And I, actually, as you're mentioning that, I was just remembered. So I had read, I think I had read a story about how in the New York Times about how to start. Yeah, you said there's 300 language groups in California, but in New York City alone, there's over 700 languages spoken today. Yeah. And across the U.S., 1300. But the article was about how languages 
were dying in New York and, and how New York was one of the last places some of these languages were, were being spoken, how the last people to speak these languages were dying in New York. And so I forgot to mention that the work, uh, the exhibition was New York focused. So all the work was about New York. And so that's why accounting started with New York. And it's since broadened out to other cities, including St. Louis and now Omaha. Yes, and also Houston. And Houston, that's right. That's right. This project is a great example of how, at the core of a lot of your work, is asking something of the viewer. So for accounting or Freedom Radio, which is to come later this summer, that's your asking for your audience's voice, literally their voice. For Breathing Pavilion, you're asking the viewer to be conscious and mindful of his or their breathing. Why is asking something of the viewer such a key or core strategy for you that you keep going back to it? <laughs> it's always different for each project. Most of my work is either interactive or participatory. And the, the type of work that I'm interested in making, I want the people to be a part of the work. And so asking them to, or inviting them to be a part of the work so that they can sort of see themselves in it and, and see themselves in whatever issue that is being explored in the work and to sort of use the work to maybe as a way of being able to speak about these things. I mean, I think like one of the things about it that's really interesting to me is that it's not that your work isn't aesthetic. There, there are aesthetics within your work, of course. But primary within a lot of your work is, is a kind of physical strategy that requires the bodily or, in this case, voice presence of, of a viewer, that you foreground the physical and the interactional over, over the aesthetic. Yeah, okay. So I think if we're doing that, I mean, there's sort of two parts of my practice, which is like one is about representing issues or critiquing issues. And then the other one's about proposing new alternatives. And that's what I'm doing in both accounting and breathing pavilion. And both of these projects are meditations in different ways, but accounting is also a speculation on what a what a unified United States would sound like and look like. And that's not, it's to say that if you come to New York City, while there are over 700 languages spoken here, you won't hear more than a few at a time anywhere. Maybe if you're in Queens, but that's not the everyday experience of most New Yorkers, I think. And so it's to say that by... What you're hearing in this work is an alternative. It's how things could be, and it's how we talk about the U.S. being, but it isn't. So in that way, I see it as like a speculation on we're using things that are existing to create things that don't exist, right? Because all these languages are not, I mean, just from 1 to 100, you hear more languages than you may have ever heard in your life. And in the digital version, you see more representations of numbers and words than you've probably ever seen in one place before in your life. <laughs> yeah, that too, that too, yeah. So to say, like, if this is 
this is what diversity looks like. It's really complicated. And sometimes, and I don't know, using people's voice, I mean, I could have just hired, maybe I could have hired people to record all these samples, but it was interesting to think about the possibility of someone who's never seen the language. You know, when the work is included in an exhibition in a gallery, someone's voice, the possibility of someone who's never heard their voice in that space could be heard in that space. Or a language that's never been represented in that space could be represented in that space. And so doing that, it it felt like, you know, to give someone that possibility was also part of the work. Um, thinking about these works as portraits and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of th- thinking about different ways of portraying sort of more abstract ideas. And I think it was, I couldn't have done that without actually making the work participatory to actually represent like what's happening now, to actually create something of the future now. Why is portraiture a useful framework for you to think in terms of? Well, I started thinking in the context of portraiture when I was thinking, like starting from one of my first works, The Refugee Project, in which I was thinking about different ways of portraying the refugee crisis. Let me jump in real quick. The Refugee Project visualizes refugee migrations from 1975 to the present. So it's a digitally built thing whereby the viewer can see how refugee pathways worked and work. Right. And to see the scope and scale of the refugee crisis, not just from the perspective of like a few countries when it's in in just a few people in those countries, which is the way I was seeing these crises portrayed was through photography and film, which again only shows usually a few countries and a few hundred people from those countries when it's hundreds of countries, millions of people across, you know, decades And so I was thinking about everything that's not in the frames of photography and film and looking at data as a way to look outside the frames to see what else is happening outside the frames to see those other countries and those other people and to to do all that in one frame, which is what you can do with new media, what you can do with interactive media. So I started... Really just, yeah, looking at data as a lens to see outside the frames of those mediums of photography and film. So that's why I think about portraiture in that way. And I think a lot of my work is about thinking about new ways to create portraits that aren't... Actually, when I look at these images, I mean, they feel violent. And I'm looking for other ways to show that without putting someone's body in there without putting that violence on, on someone's body. That reminds me of something that you told Dazed Rod Stanley in an interview. And that is that when you were in college and you learned computer coding, you talked about that, about learning how to draw with code, which I thought was a really interesting and unusual phrasing. What does that mean? What does it mean to draw with code? And is it maybe a beginning of, of what you were just describing? I think so. I mean, I was learning how to draw with code isn't something that I was being taught, so it felt specific. (laughs) As in, it was learning how to draw, not from what you can see, but what you can't see, like I can't. Or I don't want to describe it as drawing with numbers, because that sounds dry. 
but it all i mean i think that's why it was really important that i needed to start with a topic or i needed to start with an issue now i mean if you were to ask someone to draw the refugee crisis i mean there's many things you could do you know all the things that jake lawrence did but it's i think if i want to create a contemporary image of what that looks like using contemporary tools it would it just wouldn't look like that and that's when i think about drawing with code is the more complicated things get the less ability we have to really depict these things i think without these tools unless we're going to continue to look at the individual but if we're looking at you know systems affecting an individual i think is when you know we start and not necessarily drawing with code because even outside of drawing with code i mean a lot of the work that i'm doing could be done manually like deconstructed anthems i could have i mean applied the same probability and statistics manually without you know having to use code but i actually wanted to be able to generate it over and over again because as things change i want the work to be recent and current i want the things that are driving the work to be current in the work so that's sort of like drawing with code lets you do that lets you keep things dynamic so as as the world changes the the work changes it's the same with accounting it's evolving so the more people call the more diverse the work becomes right and and the more people that are incarcerated the worse the anthem sounds you know and it's like these are dynamic things and it's like maybe one day it'll look better and that it remake the work and then <laughs> regenerate the work <laughs> and you know everything is just much better you know things are in their place you know they're, they're works that are both a metaphor for the american project but that also address the american project and the idea of, of the american nation i'm glad you brought up deconstructed anthems let me quickly describe what what deconstructed anthems is we'll have a vimeo video on manpodcast.com showing what it is it's an ongoing series of music performances and installations in which a self-playing piano, and sometimes musicians too, deconstruct the Star-Spangled Banner, playing it multiple times, removing notes from the song at the rate of mass incarceration in the United States. And of course, it ends, ends in silence. Like a whole lot of your work, Deconstructed Anthems addresses America's idea of itself, the idea of the American nation. And... You know, I've been struck in the last year or two by how intensely American artists, especially BIPOC artists, are questioning American symbols and America's nationalism. That's that's not new, certainly. One of the revolutions the Harlem Renaissance brought to American art was the instigation of a broad questioning of the national project and the stories Americans tell themselves. But I think in the last couple of years, there's been a real uptick in, in, in artists using America's most fundamental symbols in, in those investigations. How did you come to choose the Star-Spangled Banner? Why did you come to choose the Star-Spangled Banner for an address of incarceration? So, I mean, I, I was walking down the street when I came up with this idea. So. <laughs> Isn't that how we all come up with our best <laughs> ideas? 
Yeah, I think I, I just came up with another idea the other day walking down the street. Like I, I was just walking and I was just thinking about I had started thinking about data around mass incarceration after I'd done the refugee project. Vera Institute of Justice asked me to make a map on their incarceration data. And I was like, well, I'm not making any more maps like the refugee project again. So, <laughs> yeah, I didn't, you know, I mean, you know, not everything should be a map. So I was like, I don't think this, I mean, and it is a map. Someone else made it, but I didn't think it was, you know, it wasn't the type of map that I thought was needed for it. Uh, you know, the, the map that I did, that's a sonic mapping, right? And I, I thought, you know, it needed something else. And so... I think maybe that the Star Spangled Banner maybe might have been on my mind because of Colin uh, Kaepernick, but maybe that's why I was there. And I'd been just meditating on, you know, I'd just been thinking about, I kept meditating on that data on mass incarceration and that research. And actually another project came from that. That's where the Green Book Project came from, was also from thinking about that data. Yeah, it just felt like it just came together. It was like, you know, like I said, intuitively... I was thinking about the Star Spangled Banner, what it's supposed to mean. And then, you know, and, you know, Star Spangled Banner, American Dream, and then the opposite of the American Dream, which is our carceral system, mass incarceration. So for me to juxtapose those two really puts in the question, American Dream, like, what is that? And who is it for? Because I was specifically looking at the racial disparities in incarceration. And yeah, I think... After I created what was really just a figurative, pragmatic, direct mapping of the refugee crisis, you know, I started thinking about to expand this idea of like representing things starting from data or drawing with data. It had to, in a way, to do it in a way that was more poetic, I thought. I need to start working with symbols. And so the next work in which I used a map after deconstructed anthems was I used the map as a symbol. You know, for this work, Pan-African AIDS, I used the shape of the U.S. without, you know, Hawaii and Alaska. And I used the shape of Africa to tell a story about, you know, Black African diaspora in relation to HIV AIDS. But that is sort of when I started thinking about how to deconstruct symbols using data. That's what I did with Star Spangled Banner. I take something because it has, all these symbols have so much meaning. Well, you know, actually they, whether or not the meaning is true is a different thing, but they have a meaning. And then, you know, I'm questioning the truth of that meaning. One of the things Deconstructed Anthems does is it treats musical notes as data. It, tre it treats the score of the, the song as data and deletes it as relevant. Yeah. Well, I, I thought you were going to say it treats the notes as people. Well, I, that's where I was going to get. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean each, each note comes to represent. Yeah, the score is a system. Like the musical scoring, like sheet music, is a system for writing music for composing music and the incarceration system <laughs> is a system for incarcerating disproportionately incarcerating black and brown people. So it was like one system for another system. And so the, in that way is really easy to deconstruct. I just looked at the, I, you know, I don't, I didn't know how to read or write music when I started, 
now that I'm done with the project, I still don't really, you know, I learned everything <laughs> for the project and then I can't remember Reminds me of my childhood <laughs> piano lesson. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was really intense because I wrote the, you know, I wrote, the score is software generated. So I wrote custom software to compose the score and I'd never done anything like that. And so I had to go into another place to do that. I was gone for like, you know, two months, like just really just <laughs> trying to learn how to do it. I mean, you know, reading and writing music is one thing, but actually it's really difficult to, to write music software because it actually had to use like three different notations because not every notation can be actually deconstructed in the way I needed it to be. So it got really technical, yeah. And to actually produce sheet music, right? I mean, it's like it actually produces sheet music. You're one of a number of artists that have been addressing the anthem in recent years. We featured another of them, Bethany Collins, on on the show last year. Have you noticed that there are other artists addressing Star Spangled Banner and have any little networks amongst you sprung up? No, I have not noticed that. And I didn't know about Bethany Collins' work either. No, I haven't. And we haven't been in conversation either. But I am part of this book that is going to be published. I don't know when. But, you know, the person that's writing that book, his name is uh, Mark Clegg. And the last chapter is titled Social Barometer, which is what I had been calling, like, I'd been referring to deconstructed anthems as a social barometer of, like, how well society is doing. So if you're listening to deconstructed anthems, it could be a social barometer for how well we're doing. And if we're doing better, then the anthem would sound better, right? And if we're doing worse, the anthem would sound worse. And so I wanted to bring that idea in. And also, I've heard people, I don't know, if, did it feel random when you listened to deconstructed anthems? I wouldn't say random, because random, random suggests chaos or anarchy, right? So I wouldn't say random, but I would say falling apart. Yeah, I don't know. Well, when I sometimes people you know reference like John Cage's work, where just in relation to silence, though, I think, and also chance music and in relation to like randomness. But yeah, I just want to say that the work is not random, as you know. That it's just replaying the system. That it's the notes are being removed and the way black and brown people are systematically being removed from the communities. And that's a really important understanding. It does sound like the song is decomposing, it, like the song is becoming a ruin of itself. And in that way, it reminded me of 19th century American paintings, fascination with Roman ruins. Um, 19th century American artists were fascinated by the decline and fall of Roman republicanism and were mortified that America's republican experiment would go the way of Rome's, that it would become corrupted and would, would fall away. You know, of course, America goes, the North goes to war, goes to civil war over not slavery and not anti-racism, ha ha, and not doing 
better for black people. America goes, you know, the, 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 the Civil War starts out to hold the Union together to, as an act of martial faith in America's Republican experiment. And that manifests itself from kind of the mid-1840s into the early 1860s in these paintings in which dozens of American artists address Rome and how it is decomposing. And, and so, yeah, the word, the word decomposing kind of came to mind as I've watched and heard deconstructed anthems. Wow, thanks for that. I hadn't, I mean, I hadn't made any of those connections. <laughs> it talks about the history of the Star Spangled Banner and the tradition of remixing the Star Spangled Banner. In the, the book he cites, I think about, there was over 500 versions of the lyrics to the Star Spangled Banner. And Bethany Collins's work cites a bunch of them, yeah. Like maybe maybe hundreds of them. Really? Yeah. Oh, I need to I need to look at this work because when I found that out, I was like, oh my god, like I wanna that's like source material, like I need to see. Because you know, when you it, it felt like the case it was making is that like one of the most civic things you can do or a civic duty is actually to continue that tradition of remixing the Star Spangled Banner. And that it's like a fluid thing, it's a dynamic thing. It was something that but you know, before it stopped, you know, with the current version, had many versions. Like, supposedly, each, you know, week in the newspaper, there would be new lyrics, because that was before, you know, you had, you know, these dynamic interactive mediums to where you could actually read the thing and hear it at the same time. So you would just, you knew the tune, and you would just read it along to that tune. Because everyone knows the song, how the song goes, but you change the words. It just It's such a clear example of how Americans' idea of what America is and is not, is not fixed and has never been fixed and is always changing in response to the ideas and understandings that Americans, such as artists, bring to it. And until I saw and heard, for that matter, Bethany's work, I hadn't realized that either. Wait, wait, is it is it the piece where it's actually the words are there's black text and it's sort of like distorted? Yeah, so it's a room sized installation. And so she's done it with My Country Tis of Thee, which was like our first national anthem. And then she's done it with the Star Spangled Banner. So I have seen that. I was thinking like sonically. I was thinking like I wasn't thinking about. It exists sonically too. Yeah, there's a yeah. I mean, it's also you know she's she's made sound installations of both, and I think there's six track or eight track. So the effect, you know, and I'm going to butcher this, but but you know the famous Janet Cardiff forty piece motet piece, where each of forty tracks is recorded independently, and then so Bethany's works that way only as like a six to eight work, six to eight track installation, and then they they play over each other. Wow, I've thought about doing that, and now I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have something else. Well, I mean, this is an ongoing series. Like, I am working on a new version now. I'm making a custom piano. So I deconstructed it in the sheet music, but now I want to deconstruct it in the piano itself. So instead of removing notes from the sheet music, I'm going to remove notes from the piano but in real time. So as the pianist is playing any version 
or arrangement of the Star Spangled Banner, the notes will just, the keys will just be, you know, holding themselves down one at a time at the rate of mass incarceration, ending with no keys, no keys. So it's, it, the piece was about improvisation and how you have to improvise, you know, to not be part of that statistic, what do you have to do? And I think there's this long tradition of just improvisation that is how you get to jazz and how you get to other forms of like resisting different environments and situations. Or actually, what am I saying resisting? Navigating. Yeah, navigating different environments. And that's so the the work is about with with fewer and fewer fewer notes, how can you still play the Star Spangled Banner? It's improvisation. With fewer and fewer opportunities, how can you still progress as a black or brown person is, you know, as a marginalized community or a marginalized individual in the U.S.? You know, we've been talking about data and, and, and there's a certain relationship between data and facts. And you, you, you've talked about how your work is a, a visual and sometimes sonic response to what often seems these days like the factlessness of American discourse. Is one of the reasons you're attracted to the data you're attracted to, data sets such as mass incarceration data, is because you want to aestheticize and, and bring into your practice an address of facts, uh, countering a certain American factlessness, if you will? I mean, I'm just trying to get closer to the truth. And... You know, if I'm trying to do that while looking outside of myself, I think the next thing to do is to look at, you know, for me, I'm looking at two ways. You know, I'm going to put it in the context of individuals and systems. If I'm trying to look for the different truths between those levels, then that's, you know, that's where I feel like data comes in. And I'm looking for not just any data. I'm looking for data that is undisputable and undeniable. I mean, that's why, you know, looking at the, from 1925, I think there was 90,000 incarcerated. And now there's like, you know, in 2015, when that data set ended, there was like 1.4 million. So, I mean, it just keeps going up. It wasn't, it wasn't difficult to look at that data and then look at the Star Strangled Banner and know how it was going to end. You know, so it wasn't like I'm looking at, like I stopped looking at like data points. And now I'm looking at more the larger image. Like I don't, you know, I don't, most of my data is, I mean, higher level. So I'm looking at trends over time to see how things are progressing and, you know, to start from, you know, as far back as it goes to tell like a longer arcing story like that is based in the past but very much in the present because like when i see a lot of representations of these things they just feel like somehow you know just like the historical and i just want to bring them you know draw that line from what it feels like history to what is something that like feels like contemporary you know along along that line american art maybe more than the art of any other western national tradition has been interested in truth. You know, that descends from, from 
transcendentalism and radical New England thinking of the 1830s and manifested itself in American painting in the mid-19th century, such as in the truthful representation of botanical species. You know, and then continues, you know, into the, into, into the Harlem Renaissance through, you know, work we were just talking about, like Jacob Lawrence's Struggle series, in which he tries to undermine the mythologies within American history by writing a fuller, more inclusive, and indeed, very much to his point, more truthful American history. So when you talk about data as offering a pathway to truth, I think that I think it's within a really, really long, like a 200-year, almost 200-year-long American tradition. That's what I'm going to tell people now. I'm just, I'm just carrying on the tradition. So before we go, we'll have this information on manpodcast.com too, but could you tell people how they can participate in accounting? Oh, okay. So yeah, anyone can participate in accounting by recording, and you can record by calling 844-959-3197. And you can also participate by transcribing recordings which sounds like a lot, but all, most of the recordings are auto-transcribed. So if, you're, if someone else has called and recorded in your language, then it's been transcribed once, and we just use those transcriptions for that call. So, but for languages that are more rare or less heard, those need to be transcribed. So we're asking people to help us transcribe those as well. And then I think listening and watching the work is also part of participating. And you can do that at a-counting.us. And yeah. And we'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com. When you say languages, you're not, you're not kidding. Languages that have been entered into the project, if you will, vary from Farsi to Esperanto to several different versions of Spanish. So Caribbean Spanish, Cuban Spanish, Dominican Spanish, and so on. Yeah, we want all the dialects, all the voices, all that. American Southerners will be delighted by that. Ekene <laughs> Ijoma, <laughs> thanks so much. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens, and The Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Focus Y.L. Shockey, highlighting a film from his ambitious trilogy, Cabaret Crusades, along with new and related drawings and sculpture. In this exhibition, as with much of his work, 
Shockey explores the ambiguities between history and myth in a multimedia presentation in order to challenge the authority of history. At the Modern through July 25th. Information at themodern.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Chloe Bass. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis is showing Chloe Bass Wayfinding. It's up through October 31st. The exhibition is an installation of sculpture informed by public wayfinding signage of the sort that directs tourists through a city. Bass created more than 30 signs, which she then placed throughout the Pulitzer's outdoor spaces. Wayfinding as part of Bass's Obligations to Others Holds Me in My Place project. Bass's often conceptual practice examines daily life and human intimacy. Her work has been exhibited at the Studio Museum in Harlem, by New York's Public Art Fund, at the Kunsthal Wilhelmshaven in Germany, and plenty other institutions. Chloe Bass, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Why did wayfinding signage, so the sort of signage that points people through a city park or travelers through cities into tourist sites and what whatnot, why did that seem like a construct you could use and build upon? I am always interested in instances of language in public space, and that is not exclusively limited to wayfinding signage, but I would say that wayfinding signage is a very dominant form of inserting language into public space, and it can produce a lot of helpful information, but it can also produce sort of a lot of incidental found poems that can tell you something else about your environment or make you think of something else within your environment. And as an artist, I would say what compels me more broadly outside of the conditions of language and public space is these examinations of things that are always already there around us, but also what it would mean if we allow them to take up quite a lot of aesthetic mental space or spaces of meaning or other forms of clarity that for the most part we don't or can't, right? It's too overwhelming to keep track of all of these things. So I wanted to find a way to allow that to happen gently and kind of easily within environments, but also in challenging, complicated ways, materially and verbally. Wayfinding signage is typically designed to be clear and direct and to be understood as you go by at 35 miles an hour. You are not doing that kind of wayfinding signage. You've intentionally, very intentionally, included in your signs messages that must be considered. They're intended to slow people down and to prompt thought. Were you drawn to the idea of... of footsing with how signs and their messages usually work? Definitely. I was definitely drawn to that. But I will say there are always a lot of funny jokes within my project. And sometimes those jokes are known only to me and that's okay. But one of the funny jokes of the project is that I did think about this quite a lot from an artist perspective, but also from a design and functionality perspective, not just for the engineering of making safe outdoor sculptural work that needs to last for, you know, six months to a year in pretty good condition without falling down or being uncleanable or whatever. But also I was following some of the engineering guidelines and accessibility guidelines for how to make things visible at 35 miles an hour, even though this is not content that is operational in that way. So like the font choices and sizes are based on exactly those principles. 
And in St. Louis, where the project is currently installed at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, some people are able to drive by parts of the project and see it. In Harlem, where the project was installed with the Studio Museum in St. Nicholas Park, fewer people were having a drive-by experience, both because New York is less automobile-oriented, but also because a lot of the signs were really deeply within the park, and you can't see that from the street. But here, they can have those experiences, and it is possible, technically, from a font size perspective to get that message, but it is still a message of contemplation and slowing down. And then of course it's materially complicated because I have used totally the wrong thing for a billboard, which is mirror. We are going to come back to mirrored surfaces and reflections in a moment. I first want to provide and address a couple examples of the messages on the, on the actual signs so one, which I picked at semi-random, not total random, one of the signs says, quote, I want to believe that interpretations can be different without being threatening. Could you talk us through how you got from or advanced from thinking about wayfinding to the text you used, maybe using that particular sign as an example? So I have said a few times before, and will continue to say that this project is actually about wayfinding, but it's about emotional wayfinding. It's about emotional orientation within a landscape. And it points to, I hope it points to the reality that people have very different experiences based on their bodies, identities, previous life, comfort, background, whatever, even when they're encountering the same public space, right? Public space is not the same thing for all people at all times. And so a sentence like that, which actually, it appears in that specific form on one sign, but it's an iterated sentence that appears in slightly different forms on three other signs, is a way to sort of call attention to how we engage with other people, other bodies, other ideas, other, in this case, interpretations, when we encounter them in the wild. And when I say in the wild, I mean just out and about <laughs> in public space as we incidentally encounter lots and lots of things, perhaps in New York more so than in St. Louis. The construction of that sign, its first four words, I want to believe, recurs over and over again across the installation. Why is the I want to believe construction important to you, of interest to you? Very few of these signs incorporate direct personal address in a way that tells you exactly what you should feel or what you should believe, because I don't actually think that that is aesthetically interesting to me from the perspective of language or pedagogically or educationally interesting to me from the perspective of reading. So when I say I want to believe, it seems like I am centering myself. I am actually asking you to center yourself, but I don't know what you believe, right? So I'm kind of entering into, I'd like to have this thing be true. I think the world would be better if this were true, whatever that means for you. But you kind of have to get yourself there rather than saying, I believe, which is a much clearer, stronger statement, but has the potential to be a bit emotionally exclusionary in this context. I started with text-based signs. There are non-text-based signs here, too. What work do they do and what do they show? So there are four image-based signs, one for each section of the project. The project sections are anchored also through the four billboards, which contain questions. Those questions are... How much of life is coping? How much of care is patience? How much of love is attention? And how much of belief is encounter? 
And those four large-scale billboards carry along with them. So each carries with it two double-sided text-based signs at a medium scale, four garden markers per section, I don't remember. So it also carries with it four image-based signs. And each of those four image-based signs is at the same scale as the medium-sized text-based signs, the double-sided ones. So they are 24 by 36 inch sign faces. The image-based signs are printed on plexi, so you can see through them. And each of those four signs depicts an image of a gesture of holding. Those images were taken from the New York Public Library's media collection. I had done some research in the summer of 2018 where I was looking through just their folders of family-based images, right? You can go there and look up images by topic and you don't really know where they're from. And I was looking through those folders of images just to see any images that I could find in those folders from the calendar years of maybe like 1940 to 2000 that depicted at first like visually clear interracial families. Then I had to settle on non-white families because in total I found 47 usable images and some of them are questionable, not in their content, but in whether or not they actually fit the terms of my search. I have high resolution scans of all 47 of those images, and I have been using them in a variety of different contexts, but in wayfinding, they're cropped to show just the hands and different ways that we hold or exchange a body of somebody that we feel close to or care about. You mentioned mirrored surfaces a moment ago. So a number of the signs are, we'll have images on on manpodcast.com, but the mirrored signs are kind of in a different format. You know, they're horizontal, larger. Of course, they have text on them too. Mirroring and reflection has a long history in American art. What about mirroring or reflection attracted you to it? Absolutely. I'm going to point out something also that people sometimes don't know, which is that those medium-sized text-based signs are also mirrored. The background is frosted and the letters are still mirror. So as you approach them, they also change. But the billboards are the most obvious mirror because, you know, only the letters are frosted out. So there's the vast majority of a 10 foot by 4 foot sign face is reflecting back. It's not a precise mirror. It's a slightly softened mirror. But I was interested in the use of mirror in part, I think, because I grew up in a home with a mirrored coffee table. And so a lot of my experience of life, you know, when you're a little kid, you're sort of at coffee table level, like that's that's to scale for you and your height. And so I grew up in a, in a home where I was like sort of constantly reflected back or able to see my environment around me reflected back. And I think that made a strong impact on me visually. But I will also say that as part of or an extension of the longer conversation about monuments in America and things that exist at a large or potentially monumental scale. I, first of all, am not an artist who works very strongly in figuration unless I'm working with actual bodies within the context of performance. And occasionally I document people in photographs. But also, you know, I think that making something that reflects back its own environment is an interesting way of grappling with what the monument can be or can offer and what that makes visible to you, not just in its existing form, but in its sort of doubled form is a question that I love to ask in a variety of contexts. What does it mean if you have one person brushing their teeth in public? Well, like, that's a little weird. I don't know. Two people brushing their teeth in public, like a little more weird. Ten people brushing their teeth in public, it's like striking, right? And 99 people brushing their teeth in public is a parade as far as I'm concerned. So if you can have 
one existence of the environment in the context of everyday life, and then the doubled environment also in the context of everyday life, but framed as art. And I think Lorraine O'Grady's work obviously does this, and that's not mirror, that's just framing. You know, there are, as you say, long histories of mirroring in American art, but having that thing appear twice and yet actually be out of reach for people to see themselves within it is fundamentally interesting to me. You know, what's also interesting about the mirroring, at least at least to me, may not have been a factor for you, given that this project was initially installed in Harlem St. Nicholas Park, is that in St. Louis is Eero Saarinen's Gateway Arch, which is both America's largest public sculpture and also America's foremost monument to its own imperialism. And it isn't as highly reflective as your surfaces, but it is reflective. You know, it does send back light and lights and forms as you are in front of and around it. And the way the Saarinen functions as an, an ending and an answer and a completion and a celebration of that completion, your work in a St. Louis context is much more personal and much more open-ended and encourages investigations in a way that the Saarinen does not. Well, thank you very much for saying so. I mean, I appreciate that, and I hope for that very much. I will make a small argument, not about the work or about Saarinen, but just about monuments to American imperialism. I would say, like, the, the greatest monument, in my opinion, to American imperialism is, like, the prison system or, like, longstanding secret wars that we forget we're even in. But, you know, this is like the, the most physical manifestation. Yeah, I could go on here about Davis Guggenheim, but I'm not going to. <laughs> so speaking of Harlem's St. Nicholas Park, so for listeners not familiar with New York or, or Harlem, the park is about half a mile-ish from, from the Studio Museum, which, which commissioned the project. And in St. Louis, the work is in the neighborhood around the Pulitzer. Are the sites and sightings important to how you conceived or install the piece or or are they more incidental? So in Harlem, very much so. In Harlem, the site of the project, because we actually had the opportunity to pick from three different public parks in Harlem and I wound up choosing St. Nicholas and luckily they were amenable to receiving and stewarding the project, which was so great. But I was interested, you know, initially when we set out to do the project, it was a pretty open-ended commission and I had never had such an open-ended large-scale commission before. So we went through a lot of different conversations and research to even get me like able to think this through properly, which was so great to be working with an institution that values that kind of time and thinking. And in St. Nicholas Park, what initially drew me to the landscape was actually that it has a terrific vista, right? Harlem is interrupted geologically by a series of cliffs and hills. And those, you know, structures within the landscape, I could say ruptures, but I actually think they produce a certain kind of continuity if you live in the area. Those structures offer perspective on seeing as well and on situating yourself. And so I wanted the park with the clearest vista. And St. Nicholas Park is that, right? Morningside Park has experiences of that, but there's very little space where you can clearly see from one place to another. St. Nicholas Park has this wonderful combination of like flat brushiness and also just like deep, clear views. It also was emotionally important to me because I felt like that park has such an incredible life. And I was not in New York during the pandemic, 
But I was led to believe that that really strongly continued during the pandemic, that St. Nicholas Park just really attracts a wide range of people who are using the park in wonderful ways. And that was always my experience in researching it and in working there. And when I say researching it, my research was being there, right? I spent a lot of time there. I read about it as well, but that is only so helpful. Really, you need to be in a place in order to know it and to know how to put something, especially for emotional situating into it, right? You can't assume who all is going to be in a public space or what they might know or what they might need. But if you don't try to be there a lot, you'll never find out. In St. Louis, the ability to put the project on the Pulitzer's campus offers a different kind of opportunity, which is to say, like, this is still the museum, but it is the part of the museum that is always publicly accessible. It doesn't have open hours. It's always just there. Only one sign for the entire project is inside the part of the Pulitzer that is closed at night, and you can still see it from the street. And it's a very small sign. And so, you know, to use that space and to say that museums also occupy a section of public life, whether we're able to see that or not, has significance in a different way than the way that it did in Harlem. But we've added a fourth totally new section of the project to the Pulitzer's exhibition of wayfinding. And it is the section that centers around the question, how much of belief is encounter? And I think putting something in a space that is sort of public-private gives that question a different weight or meaning to me. Finally, Wayfinding is part of a larger project on which you've been working. A project called Obligations to Others Holds Me in My Place. What is that broader project and how does or how will Wayfinding fit into it? Obligation to Others Holds Me in My Place is a kind of long term uh, research project about intimacy at the scale of the immediate family. That sentence, obligation to others holds me in my place, is one kind of definition or feeling of family that I have had that may be relatable to other people, especially during or after the pandemic when either you were alone too much or you were with the same other people too much. And that project has a number of different forms But wayfinding fits into the work because all of the sentences and images that I was using for the project are actually part and parcel of my research writing and statements around intimacy at the family scale. So while the project plays out as kind of an intimate exploration of the self within an urban environment, which is maybe a different kind of partnership, the way that I was contextualizing how I wrote and thought about the work was really considering that people together in cities become, for better and for worse, their own kind of family or can replicate their own kind of family dynamics. And that's how it fits into the larger series of work, which will also include a four-channel film installation, has already included a number of public billboard projects, essays, a publication, and perhaps a few other things. Chloe Bass, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.